This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Transcend Human Podcast. Great to be with you another sunny Monday morning here in Southern California. You know, I feel like I say that every single time, but it's probably because it's true. Like, I really enjoy the fact that I get to jump on here every single week, talk with you, share ideas, um, and just be together. So I guess I can't apologize for that. I'm going to jump on here every Monday morning, and I'm going to say I'm glad to be with you. I'm going to talk about it being a sunny Monday morning in Southern California, because most of the time that's true. Um, Even though crazy story, um, this past week, something insane happened. Um, it It was a cold day to begin with. I think it was in the 60s most of the day. And then at night, all of a sudden, we started hearing thunder which you'll get that every now and then, but it got louder and it got louder. And then all of a sudden it started to hail. And we noticed that the temperature had dropped dramatically. It went from being in the 60s to being about 45 degrees. Um, The winds picked up, the hail came, the hail was being blown against our, our windows in the house and it was just loud. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, are are our windows going to break? Because it was literally that loud. And we looked out and there was, you know, little chunks of ice all over the road, building up on the road. Um, You know, you're starting to worry about the cars that are out there and whether they're going to get damaged, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, so it isn't always sunny in California, just to be honest. All right. So where are we at here? Uh, February 21st, 2021. Again, welcome back to the not only the Transcend Human podcast, but the Conscience Driven Therapy series. And we are way in deep at this point. You know, we are in chapter seven of 10. So we are just getting to the end here. Um, a lot of the content that we've been talking about in, in this episode and the last couple have really been getting to the, the meat of the content, the the bones, the skeleton, if you will, of what really makes up conscience-driven therapy. So it's been a lot of fun, but it's also been hard work, right? I mean, it's getting a little more complicated. Um, I'm sure it's it's harder for me to explain. It's probably harder for you to listen to an, an hour worth of content that's, you know, kind of this detailed. But hang with us. We're almost through. Um, and if you've taken notes or if you've just kind of kept up along the way, uh, I think it's going to be super helpful uh, moving forward in your life to just have this information and to be able to think through your life, your current situation, your worldview from this perspective as you as you try to grow and, and make progress in your life. So that's where we're at. Um, minute of transparency. I'm going to call this one anger management. So do you get angry? Uh, the correct answer to that question is yes, because we all get angry every now and then, some more than others. But but what if I asked it this way? When you get angry, how angry do you get? Now, that's a bit bigger, right? Ouch, that puts a little different spin on it, because now I'm asking you if you have anger problems. I'm digging in a bit deeper to see if your anger reaches a certain level or if it gets red hot at times, kind of like mine used to. So at this point in life, I just have to own it, really. I mean, there's no point in pretending that I have it all together and that nothing ever gets me worked up. At the end of the day, anger used to be one of those things that got the best of me on a regular basis. And the most visible expression of that would probably be road rage, right? The ability to go from zero to 60 on the anger scale in a matter of seconds based on the way people were driving around me. Now, I still remember two incidents back when I was in college or shortly thereafter. Uh, The first one, I remember a person cut me off and and basically acted like it was no big deal. So I decided that I would follow them as closely as possible for as long as possible until they knew just how big of a deal it really was, of course. Um, 
Now, after a while, I was way off course, right? I wasn't going in the direction that I needed to be going. So I had to stop following them in order to make it back to where I needed to be. That was one incident. A second, uh, I think there was a person entering like a, a highway on an uh, on-ramp. And the, the on-ramp basically created a second lane, but only for a very short period of time. And then it merged into the one lane that I was in. And so this person came on the on-ramp and as if I was not there, just slowly merged over into my lane, um, forcing me to slam on the brakes and kind of swerve over to the, the left shoulder of the road. And after I regained my composure, I simply went off, right? I sped up, I passed the car, and then I came to a complete stop in front of them on the highway. I got out of my car and stomped back toward their car just so that they understood how bad they were driving. I think I yelled a few things. I may have made some gestures. And then I got back in my car and drove away. Now, not my finest hours, to be sure. I look back on those incidents and I am a little bit ashamed. Did I actually do that? What was wrong with me? And what was going through my head? Well, that's the great question, right? And my guess is that there wasn't much going on in my head. I wasn't really thinking at all. In fact, I was just reacting to the emotions that were raging inside of me. Now, I have no idea where I learned that behavior. I don't recall my parents acting that way when they were driving. So why did I engage in that sort of behavior? Now, for our purposes today, I don't think we even need to determine how I got to that level, right? The important question is this. When did I realize it was dumb? And when did I kind of mature and grow out of it? Looking back, I think I can pinpoint it. So after college, I spent a few years floundering around, trying to live life, trying my hand at adulting. But after a few years, I realized I probably needed to go back to school in order to get a degree that would allow me to live. So I entered grad school and I eventually graduated with my MSW. Somewhere in the second year of the program, I took a class that introduced me to the most popular treatment modalities that were out there. Um, I read about all of them, but eventually I fell in love with the cognitive therapies. So that's cognitive therapies like conscience or uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and rational emotive behavioral therapy. Those are two that I really kind of uh, connected with. Now, our school, the school that I went to, believed very strongly in a form of therapy called brief solution focused therapy. And they really made it the core um, of the program. It's the, the main therapy that they taught us. And we did role plays and all of that took place with brief solution-focused therapy. However, CBT and REBT really got just an overview and an introduction. But because I had connected with them, um, I bought a bunch of books about them. And I took them on my honeymoon shortly after graduation. I know what you're thinking, right? It must've been an exciting honeymoon, right? Tammy reading People Magazine and me reading about my treatment modalities. But it was, it was fun. We had an amazing time and we still managed to do a little light reading every now and then while lying on the sun-drenched beaches of Jamaica. And this was really the turning point for me and my anger. Now, I would be lying if I said that I never had another incident or that I don't get triggered from time to time even now but nothing like it was in college. So why the change? Well, because I started to understand it. I started to see some of the science behind it. I started to see that my anger wasn't really created because of the person driving the other car. My anger was created by my irrational beliefs about that incident or about that behavior. The book, How to Control Your Anger Before It Controls You by Albert Ellis. Now, I bought the book to make myself a more well-rounded clinician, right? So that I would be able to help my clients in therapy. I knew that a lot of people probably struggled with anger, and I wanted to have a strategy in my head prior to them walking into my office. Needless to say, the book was really written for me. I ate it up, and before long, I had a fresh new perspective on my own anger issues. Now, important note. The book that I just mentioned is not an easy button, right? It's not a magic book that you just read once and you're cured of your anger. There are hundreds of great books on anger management. But my point is this. Once I read the book, 
I had an understanding of my anger. And an understanding is the first step in doing something about it. And this is really going to be a theme for us for the next two weeks. So today we're jumping into chapter seven, which is understanding the battle. Again, the point here is that we fully understand the battle that exists between God and Satan. We can't see it, right? We may hear little things about it. We may even see little things that suggest it's there, but it doesn't really mean anything to us. And unfortunately, it doesn't impact our thinking and our behaving. We're still angry little college kids driving around looking for somebody to light their fuse. Then next week, we dive into the second part, chapter eight, which is knowing is half the battle, which will be the perfect complement to what we discussed today, because it's really a two-step process. Step one is understanding something, gaining the knowledge you need, knowledge that you don't previously have. And then step two is how we respond or how we act upon that knowledge. So today, chapter seven, understanding the battle. We're going to revisit the controversy. We're going to talk about Satan's game plan, which is revenge. And we're going to talk about God's game plan, which is a rescue mission. Number one, revisiting the controversy. So the controversy concept is the big idea behind pretty much everything I've worked on up to this point. So the manuscript I wrote back in 2001 was called Controversy Theory, and it was all about, you guessed it, the controversy. Um, the idea that I had for a novel series called the trilogy, that's kind of centered around this controversy theme, um, transcend human, the transcend human podcast, and now conscience driven therapy. The controversy concept is really at the heart of every single one of these endeavors. So let's start by looking at that. Go back to the beginning with a definition from controversy theory. And we actually discussed this, I think, in the first chapter of Conscience-Driven Therapy. But here it is again. The battle, or the controversy rather, is the battle that exists between God and Satan for the allegiance of every human being on earth, past, present, and future. One more time. The controversy is the battle that exists between God and Satan for the allegiance of every human being on earth, past, present, and future. Now, if you've been around for any length of time, this should sound familiar. The controversy is very similar to The Force for those of you who grew up loving Star Wars and the myriad of books, movies, and television series that have followed. You kind of recognize what I'm talking about, right? In Star Wars, the Force is this unseen power in the universe, something that exists outside of the three dimensions that people could see. The Force has a light side and it has a dark side meaning that it could be used for good or evil. Now, most people lived oblivious to the fact that the Force even existed, but there were groups of people like the Jedi and the Sith um, who were able to connect with the Force when they learned about it and studied it. And this connection gave them power, right? But it was up to them to choose how they used it, for good or for evil. And then finally, the oblivious people, though they couldn't see the Force, were actually greatly impacted by it. They had no idea, but their very lives depended on how the force was used. Sound familiar? The controversy works the same way. God and Satan are powerful forces that exist outside of our three dimensions. There's light and dark, good and evil. Most people walk through life oblivious to the fact that this is even important to them or that it has the power to impact their future in any way. But little do they know, their very existence is because of this power. They have no idea that the power in this fourth dimension is intricately linked to every part of our three dimensions. And then there are those of us who have come to an understanding about the controversy. We learn about it, we look into it, and eventually we realize the importance of it. We realize that the power is there for the taking and that each of us can choose which part to leverage, the good or the evil. And that's the illustration I want us to think about when we dive into the rest of this episode, the controversy being similar to the force from Star Wars. Now, the controversy itself has a backstory, but we spend a huge chunk of time on that in chapter one. So we're not going to repeat that here. Plus, we have a lot to get to today. So let's dive in and may the force be with us. Okay, that was bad. Sorry. Number two, 
Satan's Game Plan Revenge. Now, like I said, I'm not going to drag the Star Wars analogy out for too long because I know that not everyone enjoys science fiction. But we'll at least use it in this first section when we talk about Satan because there are a bunch of bad guys in the Star Wars series and the similarities are hard to miss. The first and arguably the most powerful antagonist in the series is Darth Sidious, so also known as the Emperor. According to ScreenRant.com, first and foremost, he was a master of all lightsaber forms of combat and his comprehension of the Force and the Sith lore was unmatched. Second of all, he not only orchestrated and manipulated a war that tore apart the galaxy, destroyed the Jedi, and put him in the highest position of political power, but he ruled over the Empire as its leader for two decades, making the galaxy believe that the Jedi were evil and ruling the galaxy with an iron fist. Now, if that doesn't sound like Satan, I'm not sure what does. Another interesting thing to me is what it took to engage with the dark side of the Force. So this requirement was nothing less than getting in touch with your anger. You had to give in to your anger in order to grow stronger and become able to access the powerful dark side of the Force. This anger was obvious in most of the antagonists throughout the series. The Emperor, Darth Vader, Darth Maul, and even Kylo Ren. This battle between holding on to your anger and letting it go was a major story arc with Anakin Skywalker, who eventually succumbed to this anger and became Darth Vader. All that to say, I find correlations like this fascinating, how story arcs in pop culture can so closely match the real-world battle we call the controversy. The way that Star Wars illustrates evil and the evil we see in the world around us, how Satan, like Anakin Skywalker, had it all, up and coming, a leader among leaders, respected and powerful, but both allowed a flaw to overtake them. Something that kept tugging at them until they finally gave into it. For Anakin, it was his anger. For Satan, it was his pride. And the pride that Satan gave into led to the sin virus, which led to open rebellion, which led to war in heaven, which led to him being banished to planet Earth. And now, Satan is the emperor here on Earth the top dog, the Sith Lord to rule all Sith. And his power? Absolutely, driven by anger and his pride and his desire for revenge. That's really the long and short of it. This is a story about revenge. So we've talked about this before, right? Satan is angry with God because he wanted to be God. He wanted the power and the authority that only God has. And because he didn't get what he wanted, he's out for revenge. And unfortunately, that revenge is worked out right here on our little planet. We're the full recipients of his anger, and we're the pawns in his game, which is getting back at God. Now, he knows that he can't physically harm God, right? He tried that in heaven. He tried to, he tried to create a war in heaven to overthrow God, but that didn't work. God simply wrapped him and his friends up and sent them to earth. So the next best thing, if you can't harm God physically, is to harm him emotionally by kidnapping and harming his children. Now, we're going to go into great detail on this in a minute, but for now, just understand that this is the modus operandi, the piece de resistance, the big idea, the ultimate goal in Satan's world. Satan wants revenge, and we're his way of getting it. That said, let's dig into it a bit deeper. So here are two of the elements that make up Satan's master plan. The first are his weapons of choice, and the second are personalized temptation plans, or PTPs. So let's walk through each of these in order, in order to fully understand what he's up to. So we're going to start with Satan's weapons of choice. Now, I'm not going to assume that I can list every possible weapon Satan uses to trap us, but if this sort of thing sounds really interesting to you, there is a book you can read. Uh, it's called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Uh, I, my mom, I think, bought this for me way back when I was a teenager. And I remember reading it and just being fascinated by the, the whole concept behind it. So the book is a work of religious satire, supposedly. That's what it's, I mean, that's the genre it fits into. But it basically tells a tale of Screwtape, 
a mid-level demon who is writing letters of encouragement and training to his nephew, Wormwood, who is a, a lower-level demon. And the letters center around temptation and the tried-and-true methods for ensnaring human beings. Now, it's quite comical, but at the same time, it's pretty sobering as you realize that many of these methods exist in real life, and they're actual ways that Satan is trying to work on us in real life. So like I said, if that sounds interesting, pick up a copy and give it a read. But let's look at some of the major weapons that Satan uses on us in real life. Now, in order to do this, I'm going to use a Bible story. I'm going to use the story of Job because it's long been viewed as a book of the Bible that describes human suffering well. And considering that Satan is typically behind that sort of thing, it seemed like a good place to look. So quick summary of the story. Job is a wealthy and righteous man. Uh, he had a growing family, he had great wealth, and he believed in God. Believed in God enough to the point where he literally prayed specific prayers for his family and their safety on a regular basis. So around this time, God hosts a Zoom call in heaven. He invites a bunch of his top ambassadors from around the universe to join the call. And who shows up but Satan, of course. Possibly the first ever recorded incident of Zoom bombing. And of course, Satan wants to pick a fight. So he explains that the people on earth only love God because he rewards them. God points to Job and he says, hey, look at Job. He's a man who's just righteous to be righteous. Satan pushes back and says, well, that's not true because look at his wealth and his possessions and all the things that he has. If you took those things away, how do you know he would be so righteous? So God allowed Satan to test his theory on Job. Long story short, Satan did a bunch of bad things to Job. Job suffered in many different ways. And during this time, three friends stop by and try to blame the bad things on Job. And eventually, Job's wife gets in the, in the game as well and tells Job to give up. She encourages Job to curse God and die. But in the end, Job remained righteous. He cursed the day he was born but he did not curse God. He continued to believe in God and his goodness. Now, let's go back and look at the things that Satan did to Job, because I want us to see two things. First, there were afflictions specific to Job. But second, I believe there are categories of afflictions, or the weapons that Satan uses against all of us. So here we go. The first are physical or natural afflictions. So in the story of Job, Satan used the physical or natural world twice. First, Satan caused fire to fall from heaven. So this could be anything, but probably lightning or something like that that started a fast-moving fire that burned up Job's sheep and his servants. The second, it said Satan caused a great wind. So could be a tornado. Who knows? But this great wind destroyed the home where Job's children were gathered, causing their deaths. Sound familiar? These are the same things we see in our world today. Floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, fires, all things that Satan must have some level of control over, either directly or by speeding up the deterioration of the earth, which in turn increases the prevalence of these natural events. Either way, they cause a great deal of pain and suffering to the human race. Next, there are human-to-human -human afflictions. So back to the story. There were groups of people in the area called Sabaeans and Chaldeans who stole Job's property. Basically, at the time, property was livestock, right? Sheep and goats and, and cows and things like that. And they killed the servants who were watching that, the livestock. Now, this sort of thing may have happened on a regular basis back in those days, but given the wealth of Job, he must have been either respected enough in the community or possibly had enough men on the payroll to keep this from happening. But with Satan's help, these raiders were able to successfully take what they wanted, and they killed Job's servants. Again, this is one of the ways Satan influences us today. He uses other people to do his bidding, whether he forces them 
to do it or whether he simply plants seeds in their mind and then waters them, it really doesn't matter. At the end of the day, people do bad things to other people all the time. And there's no doubt that Satan is standing behind the curtain pulling the strings. Next, you have grief and loss. So when Satan caused the tornado to destroy the home where Job's children were gathered, it was fatal. Job went from having a large, happy family to it just being him and his wife again. You can imagine the mental and emotional pain he must have gone through because of this, right? For us today, the correlation is obvious. Everyone knows somebody who has lost a child or a sibling or a spouse or a relative or a close friend unexpectedly. Death happens all the time. And it makes total sense that Satan pushes the envelope in this area. Without the restraints that God has placed on him, there's a good chance that this would happen 10 times as often. Next are health afflictions. So either medical or mental health afflictions. So when Satan saw that Job wasn't cursing God, he asked God to allow him to harm Job physically, personally. Now, God agreed to this, but told Satan that he couldn't actually kill Job. So Satan caused Job to have painful boils from head to toe. Now, I don't fully understand what that means, but I'm guessing with Satan involved, it must be bad. I mean, there's a reason that he didn't afflict Job with chickenpox or zits or something like that. I'm assuming that boils are an extremely painful thing and that having one or two could make you lose your mind. So having them from head to toe was probably almost unbearable. But again, think about some of the medical conditions that we experience today. There are people living in extreme pain right now due to untreatable medical conditions. Now, we can't say with certainty that Satan is personally afflicting these people, though it's possible. Or maybe he just comes at it from another angle. Maybe he is working hard on the physical and natural environment, the ozone layer, our food supply, our water supply, causing pollution and contamination in those areas, which then lead to an increase in some of these unexplained illnesses. But regardless how it happens, it's still happening, right? And we are left dealing with the pain, suffering, and discomfort. Now, on the mental health side of things, Job wasn't specifically mentioned in the story as having mental health problems, but I believe it was probably inferred on some level. I mean, I think we can agree that the grief and the trauma and the anger and the severe depression were probably front and center for Job. Think about all of the things that he had endured in such a short period of time. If that didn't have an impact on his mental health, I'm not sure what would. Next, we have peer pressure and manipulation. So in the story, there were two forms of this, right? The first came in the form of Job's friends. During the story, we see these friends stop by and debate with Job over his predicament. And each of them comes to the same conclusion. If Job had have been a little more righteous, maybe these things wouldn't have happened. As if Job had something, you know, in his life, or if he did something that led to this, or if he deserved the bad things that happened to him. Now, we know this wasn't true because God actually scolds the friends at the end of the story. So imagine the difficulties Job experienced having three of his closest friends say the same thing and put pressure on him that there was something wrong that he had done. Next, Job faces pressure from his wife. Call it pressure, call it manipulation, whatever you want to call it, but let's not be too hard on the wife. I mean, think about it. Aside from the painful sores, she's going through the same thing Job's going through. The loss of wealth, the loss of their servants, the loss of her family. So who knows the state of mental health that she was in at the time? But her advice for Job eventually was to curse God and die. The very same thing that Satan himself was hoping for. Now, it should be obvious that we experience the same things today. We experience peer pressure. We have people trying to manipulate us. And if Satan has anything to say about it, the pressure will be to do the wrong thing and to make the wrong decisions. Finally, we have individual or one-on-one -on -one temptation. So this is the final weapon, and it's just straight up in-your-face temptation, right? Satan going one-on-one -on -one with Job, matching wits, injecting ideas into his brain the whole time. Now, this is one that I've stretched a bit because there isn't direct evidence for this in the story, right? It's not like there's a verse that says Satan bent over and whispered in Job's ear that he should curse God and die. But to me, 
there is no way on earth that Satan would have passed up this opportunity. Not only was he getting to impact Job in ways that he may not have normally been able to impact a person, but at the same time, he could be right there, right there in in front of Job, poking the bear, so to speak, you know, just putting little thoughts in his head and doubts in his mind. Things like, Job, do you really believe God is good? Job, you don't need God. I mean, it's not like he's helping you, right? Job, you know all of this is your fault, right? If you had just been a little more religious, a little more righteous, uh, if you hadn't sinned that time last week. Job, you know your life is a complete waste of time, right? Job, you know you're nothing, right? You have no value. There's nobody who wants to help you. Job, wouldn't it be better to just die and get it over with? All those little thoughts planted in Job's head in order to get him to give in to his anger, curse God, and die. And so it is with us today. This just might be Satan's favorite weapon in the controversy. It's like hand-to-hand combat for Satan versus lobbing bombs from afar. It's up close and personal. It's in our face and in our minds. Not that Satan is the one tempting each and every one of us. Remember, Satan was removed from heaven with a host of his own followers, angels that chose him versus God in the controversy. So Satan probably has an entire infrastructure in place for this, a whole system to ensure that each and every one of us is being tempted on a regular basis. Which brings us to the next element in Satan's master plan, personalized temptation plans or PTPs. Now, it makes sense to me that Satan will use all of the weapons we just discussed and more in order to get his revenge on God, right? I mean, it's just, it just seems like if if he is that hell-bent on revenge, He's got to be using those types of things. And because he has nothing better to do with his time, he's become a master at it. I mean, I believe Satan works with his army of demons nonstop, 24-7, 365, in order to influence every facet of our existence. Now, in controversy theory, we refer to this as spiritual warfare, and it really occurs on three different levels, macro, meso, and micro. So on a macro level, I think Satan is out there going, how do we create the greatest harm to the greatest number of people? So this could be everything from wars to genocide to environmental issues, natural disasters, pandemics, macro level things that are meant to impact the bulk of the world. Next, you have meso, which is like, if, if any of you have heard of systems theory, it's, it's impacting systems like the educational system, big media, the workplace, governments, technology. You can just look at social media as a master platform on the meso level. Uh, Platforms that Satan can use to promote inappropriate behavior, provide misinformation, and even increase uh, mental health problems, right? As we've seen with with the use of social media over the past few years. And then you have micro warfare. So think even smaller, families, small groups, churches, organizations, uh, and eventually us, the individual using our families to send us in the wrong direction, using individual temptation to get to keep us guessing and thinking irrationally. But it's really this last one that I want to focus on today, micro-warfare. Macro and meso are going to happen no matter what we do. They are, they're kind of outside of our control. All we can do is determine how we will respond to them. For example, um, a macro-level thing, like a natural disaster that destroys your home, it's not something you can control but you do have the freedom as to how you respond to it, right? Like Job, you can remain open to God and his leading, or you can curse God and die. On a meso level, social media is a juggernaut that just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. But it's up to us to choose how we respond to it. We can either set boundaries and use it wisely, or we can just dive in 100% and end up getting swallowed up by it. So micro-warfare is really important because it's very personal, at least the individual temptation part, right? It's Satan's weapon of choice, the hands-on weapon where he gets to get inside of our heads and try to work his magic there. But because this is so personal, it also means that we have a high level of control over it. We're able to exercise our most powerful weapons in response to these personal attacks. So back to what we said about Satan having nothing but time on his hands, right? I believe Satan has used some of that free time 
to become an expert in researching and developing personalized temptation plans or PTPs for each of us. Now, for those of you in the mental health field, this should sound very familiar. We call them treatment plans, and every clinician worth his or her salt has probably developed one in the past or is still developing them for their clients. In fact, you almost have to have one, right? If if you're billing insurance companies, they're not going to reimburse you uh, for sessions with your client unless they see a treatment plan because they want to know that you have a documented plan for helping the client make progress. And so it is with Satan. So when I was a clinician, we called the the first thing that we ever did with a client, we called it the psychosocial assessment or the PSA. It was our initial meeting with the client where we asked hundreds of questions in order to get a feel for the client's life, past and present. All Satan has to do is watch old game footage of our lives, spy on us for a bit, tap our phones, check our browsing history, and he does the same thing, right? He has a pretty good idea of what makes us tick and unfortunately what makes us unravel at the same time. And after all of this research is done, he writes up a personalized temptation plan or a PTP for each of us. Now, the way I describe this process, you're probably thinking that this happens out of the blue, right? Like Satan just realized, oh, Daryl's walking on the planet. I need to come up with a PTP for him. But that isn't the way it works because Satan has been here since the earth was created. So me being on the planet is not a surprise to him. In fact, he was there at my birth and he has been actively working against me since that day. My PTP started the day I was born and it simply revised over time to make it the most impactful PTP it can be. So let's walk through a fictitious one, just so you can see how this works. Jane Doe, personalized temptation plan for immediate and ongoing use. Demographic information, age 25, location, Salem, Oregon. Current status, living in a one-bedroom apartment, single with seven-year-old son. Family, estranged from bio mom and dad who are extremely religious. They are refusing contact due to pregnancy out of wedlock no siblings. Connections. Baby's father not in the picture. No significant other. A few friends in the picture, but Jane rarely hangs out with them due to her child being at home. Employment. Works from home, answering phones for a large cell phone company during son's school day. Financial status. Making just enough to survive. No child support being paid. Simple diagnosis. Lonely single mom struggling with identity addiction, and severe anxiety. Next, building blocks from the past and present. So Satan has a section in his PTP for landmines and minefields. So let's start with landmines. Landmines from the past. An incident of sexual abuse by a teacher. A boyfriend who left when when Jane got pregnant. In the present, nothing currently under landmines. Minefields. In the past. History of arguments and fights with parents. History of emotional abuse by parents. Told numerous times that she would fail and not amount to anything. Minefields in the present. Currently drinking daily. Willing to try new things as they are introduced to her. Heroin soon to be introduced. Potential problems or things that need flipped. So Satan is completely aware of the things that we have going for us, things that can help us or support us in making good decisions. So he works to minimize this list or flip the script, if you will, and actually get us to turn a positive into a negative. This is brilliant. So let's start with assets. Jane still has a connection to her high school youth pastor and his wife. So Satan is working to keep this from continuing. Jane has a car, a house, and a job. Satan will look for ways to disrupt these assets and create issues surrounding them. Finally, Jane has access to mental health services through her insurance. So Satan's working to make sure that it is very difficult for her to access this information. Next are strengths. Jane is intelligent. Satan's plan is to work to keep her overthinking her life. Jane is also creative. Satan wants to keep her from exploring positive creative outlets and reinforce that creativity is dark 
and reinforce the the opportunity to explore themes of death and dying. Next are present and future outside influencers. So let's look at people, places, and things. Under people, Satan's attempt is to push the relationship with two friends that she has that have access to heroin. Places work to keep Jane's life centered around her apartment with little outside exposure. Bring negative friends into this environment in order to keep it dark and depressing. Next are things. Promote addictive behavior, both alcohol and heroin. Use the COVID-19 pandemic to further isolate Jane in her home and to strengthen her fear and anxiety. Next up, temptation strategy. Two parts to this, cognitive and behavioral. So in looking at cognitive temptations, these are temptations to think in a specific way or believe certain things. So on a personal level, pour on the thoughts that Jane won't amount to anything, that she has no value, that there's no point to her struggle. Remind her that she missed out on a big chunk of her life by having a child early. Keep her isolated and focused on it. Continue to provoke anxious thoughts and push to see if you can get a panic attack to occur. When it comes to family, create more tension between Jane and her parents. Work to get the parents on social media so that they will be able to see Jane's posts on the bad days. This will reinforce her lifestyle and keep the parents at arm's length. Next, inject thoughts related to Jane being a bad mom. Remind her that she is failing as a mom. Find ways to increase the tension between Jane and her son so it becomes harder and harder to parent. Next, you have friends. Remind Jane that she has no friends. Inject thoughts that this is her fault and that they don't want to hang out because Jane is not fun and she's defective in some way. Work to get gossip started among friend groups uh, to increase drama and to decrease the connectedness that Jane could feel. Ensure that Jane hears this gossip. And then in terms of worldview, inject fearful thoughts regarding the pandemic. Inject thoughts about a dark future and that it would be a lot easier just to not be alive. Next, you have the behavioral temptations. So these are temptations to act or to behave in certain ways. On a personal level, Increase alcohol use and a desire to try other drugs. Encourage continued isolation. Encourage encourage stagnant lifestyle and no exercise. Um, Family. Encourage Jane to send drunk texts to her parents with angry and hurtful messages. Encourage Jane to say and do mean things to her son, thereby reinforcing her belief that she is a bad parent. When it comes to friends, encourage Jane to have friends over to the apartment, especially the two that have started experimenting with heroin. Encourage Jane to connect with some old high school friends on social media, those who do drugs, and post exciting images about how fun their lives are. When it comes to work, encourage Jane to call in sick as much as possible in order to cause issues with her boss. From a worldview perspective, encourage Jane to follow social media accounts that reinforce the negativity in the world and the and that the future looks bleak. Encourage Jane to do internet searches that result in links to dark and negative websites, possibly websites related to cults in her area. Encourage music that feeds into her anger and negative view on the world and society. And finally, push Jane toward movies and television shows that provide good illustrations of people engaging in sexual activity and drug use in order to feel better about their life situations. Next steps, deliver on all of the above. PTP to be reevaluated for effectiveness weekly until the end of this human's existence. Now, my first question for you is this. How did you feel as I read through that? Was it scary? Was it too much? Do you feel like I should write fiction novels because my example seemed a little bit far-fetched? Or is this something that you resonated with? Did you think to yourself, yeah, I've really known this all along. I just choose not to think about it because it hits a little too close to home. Or maybe you agree with it, but you never thought of it like that before. Maybe your worldview was just blown wide open and your mind is reeling as to what that means for you and your life. To me, This is a perfect example, a perfect illustration of the way Satan works in the controversy. The depth of it, the breadth of it, how invasive it is, how integrated it is into the human condition. 
and how personalized it is to each of our set of circumstances, how it chips away at the areas where we're the weakest and how it introduces us to the next wrong thing to do in order to keep us from moving closer to our creator. You know, this PTP was a, a just a day in the life kind of a thing of spiritual warfare. Now, I know not every Christian agrees on this, right? There are some Christians who downplay spiritual warfare and don't believe it's as intense as I just made it out to be, while there are others that push the concept way beyond what I did with my example. And transcend human and conscience-driven therapy not only resonate with the example we just talked about, but at the end of the day, we probably lean more toward the extreme. In other words, if I was able to come up with that PTP off the top of my head in less than 30 minutes, what type of PTP could Satan develop over our entire lifetime? If that scares us, good. It probably should. So why is this important? This whole idea that Satan has a personalized temptation plan for each of us. Well, as we said at the top of the episode, it's a two-step process, right? The first step is understanding something to gain knowledge that we don't previously have. And the second step is to respond or to act upon that knowledge. So this is very important because it's something that we need to understand or we won't do anything about it. We need to get to the place where we 100% believe or have faith that this is true, that there is a controversy, that Satan's game plan is to use us as revenge against God, and that we each have a PTP that Satan and his demons use in order to make sure that that happens. This is the understanding we must have in order to move forward. Okay, let's move into number three, God's game plan, the rescue mission. Whew. Okay, um, before I get into the content, wow, I probably just need to explain how I'm feeling. I literally just, in, in moving from Satan's game plan to God's game plan, I literally just felt a weight lift off of my shoulders. So for the past you know few hours, I've been trying to describe Satan, his game plan, his weapons, and the PTPs that he has for each of us. And there was literally just this dark and depressing feeling in the room. I could just feel it like I was in a tunnel, like a dark, musty, foreboding place where the air was stale and heavy. It was not a good feeling. And then the minute that I typed God's game plan rescue mission, I literally felt this calm come over me, almost as if someone like flipped the light switch on or opened a door or a window and allowed, allowed the you know cool breeze to come in. It's very strange, almost supernatural, which is why I'm very glad that I structured the episode the way I did, because we just got all of the dark stuff out of the way, and now we get to finish up on a positive note, understanding that there is good news. There is a light side of the force, right? Better news than we just talked about for sure. So let's talk about God's game plan, the rescue mission, and two of the main elements that make up his plan. So the first is the conscience, and the second is an eternal life plan or an ELP. So these are the two weapons that God uses in the controversy. I'm sure there may be more, right? You may push back and suggest that there's other things that are bigger or more important, but I'm just trying to keep it simple here. So God's game plan is very different than Satan's because the end goal is totally different. And what God offers is totally different. So think about the Super Bowl, right? Both teams have roughly the same number of players. Both teams have coaches. Both teams have the same objective and have have to follow the same rules. Uh, At the end of the game, both teams have the opportunity to win the same trophy. You just need to score more points than your opponent. Now, this is very indicative of competitions in our world, right? We enjoy sporting events. We love things like the Olympics where the games are fair, there are rules, and every competitor has the same opportunity to reach the medal stand. But this is not the way it works in the controversy. Equality and fairness just aren't a thing. God and Satan aren't equals. God is God, and Satan is a being created by God. How how on earth would that be apples to apples or fair in any way? God has the ultimate power in the universe, 
whereas Satan only has the power that God allows him to have. God created us, and he wants us back. Satan did not create us, and he wants us from being with he wants to keep us from being with God. God is perfection and offers a way back to that perfection. Satan destroyed that perfection on earth and wants to destroy us. See how this is going? Nothing like a sporting event. And on paper, we would never go for this. We would never fall for this because it's way too lopsided. It's not even a fair fight. But as we've discussed before, the world has been so blinded by the sin virus. And because we're sinful beings, we fall for Satan's lies. We're blinded to the fact that God is ultimately in control. Satan somehow convinces us that the scratch is all we're here for, that that's all we should focus our energy on. And he has the upper hand because the things that he shows us are real, tangible, visual, and immediate. Whereas God's offer can seem distant, almost like a fairy tale ending somewhere down the road. But anyway, sorry about that. I think I got a little off track. We were talking about the two elements that God uses in the controversy. So let's start with the conscience. Now, I'm not going to discuss everything there is to discuss about the conscience here. I'm simply going to try to summarize some of the previous episodes where we define it in more detail. So the main episode that I can think about where we dis- uh, discussed the conscience and what it was, uh, was back in Controversy Theory. I think it was chapter eight in Controversy Theory. And the episode was called Every Person Has a Conscience. So um, if you want to do a deep dive on the conscience, feel free to go back and listen to that episode. But let's summarize it here. So in that episode, we use the illustration of a house, right? So picture your home, many different rooms. In the illustration, the home is our mind, our brain. And the various rooms are for various functions of our mind, right? There's sensory input. There's live assessment of our environment, planning, short-term memory, long-term memory, habit forming, problem solving, technical knowledge, learned skills, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in one of those rooms, there's a television, which illustrates the conscience. Now, a television is able to bring in all sorts of messages into our house, right? Some good, some bad. And we get to choose what we watch. These days, if you have a smart TV, you're actually able to accept input from the television and transmit it back upstream. Similarly, our conscience is a portal within our minds that is directly connected to the spiritual realm. And we're able to determine what content lives there and then allow God through the Holy Spirit to notify us when behavior is right or wrong. Now, that was a little vague, but let's back it up for a minute and grab the official definition. So if we go to dictionary.com and we look up conscience, it says the inner senses of what is right or wrong in one's conduct or motives, impelling one toward right action. Another definition, the complex of ethical and moral principles that controls or inhibits the actions or thoughts of an individual. So when we read these definitions, the following thoughts emerge. It talks about a sense of what is right or wrong, right? And then it uses the word impel, which is to drive forward. So in essence, we're being driven to action by sensing something. The second one suggests it's more of a set of principles within us that control what we do and don't do, like a filter for our thinking and our behaving. Very interesting to me that both of those things can just happen, right? That there could just be something in our brain structure um, that put that there without any help or outside force. All well and good, but conscience-driven therapy suggests we can't really leave it there. The conscience is not just a database where things good and bad are listed, a database we search when questioning whether we should do something right or wrong. The conscience is really two things. First, It is a database that is created throughout our lives based on what we were taught or things that we taught ourselves to be right and wrong. And it's a direct portal to a spiritual connection. Like I said, a communication channel that God, through the Holy Spirit, can use to guide us. This means the following. The the database will be different for everyone. So not everyone has the exact same operating system in their brain, right? 
this is based on how we were raised, the research that we do, the culture we're surrounded by, and even the spiritual and religious beliefs that we grew up with. But the Holy Spirit is able to guide us based on the things that are in that database. So it makes sense that if we fill our database with things that are right and true, the Holy Spirit has a lot to work with, right? He'll have a much easier time reinforcing those things in our lives. But it also suggests that if we've filled our database with things that are not right or true, the Holy Spirit is going to have a much harder time getting through to us and helping us navigate difficult decisions. Now, this gets very complicated, but maybe we can simplify it by saying it this way. The conscience is a space in our mind where the Holy Spirit is able to live. It's a sandbox or a playground where we wrestle with spiritual and existential decisions. It is meant for good, but like everything on earth, we have the ability to corrupt it. We can we choose, right? We can fill our minds with so many negative things and beliefs that literally help from the Holy Spirit may almost seem non-existent. The final thing that we um, talked about was how the conscience plays the same role as the tree of knowledge of good and evil played back in the Garden of Eden. So back then, the tree was there as a voting booth where Adam and Eve cast their vote for Satan instead of God. And really, the conscience plays that role for us today. Each of us has the freedom of choice in how we live our lives, and the conscience is where we cast that vote for God or Satan. There is a one-time vote. We'll call it the big one, right, where we choose to accept or reject the antidote to the sin virus. This is the ultimate decision, right? The one that will make all the difference at some point in our life. And everyone will have to make that decision at some point in their life. But there are also small daily, weekly, monthly decisions we make regardless where we're at on the big one. This is where the ongoing spiritual warfare we talked about takes place. Satan uses temptation and God uses the conscience. And finally, The Holy Spirit works through the conscience in the following ways. So the Holy Spirit works as a mediator, as an advocate, as a consultant, and as a comforter, which we spent a lot of time talking about back in that um, episode from Controversy Theory. But I think we'll leave it there for now. There's There's way too much to talk about related to the conscience, and we don't really have time for that right now. So let's move into the other element of God's game plan, which is the eternal life plans or ELPs. So just as Satan has a PTP for each of us, so God has a personalized plan for each of us as well. And we're just going to call it an eternal life plan. And instead of doing a fully fleshed out example like we did for the PTP, let's just look at the differences. So when God looks at Jane Doe, He smiles because Jane is his child, and he only has her best interest at heart. So let's walk through God's eternal life plan for Jane. Jane Doe, eternal life plan for immediate and ongoing use. Demographic information, all the same. Simple diagnosis, daughter of the king, with a bright future and a home waiting for her in heaven. Building blocks from the past and present. All landmines and minefields remain the same. Potential problems. So the assets and strengths in God's plan are not seen as problems. These are things to be supported and encouraged. Present and future outside influencers. So people, places, and things. Under people, create chance meetings with coworkers who are believers. Have an old friend of the family call to check in on Jane and ask her to lunch. Places. Create positive interactions with coworkers outside the apartment and not over Zoom. Help Jane find the little coffee shop on the next block where there are positive influences and outlets for her creativity. Under things, help Jane remember her love for reading and encourage her that this is a positive outlet for her anxiety. Continue to use Jane's relationship with her son as a reason to remain clean and sober. Remind Jane about the controversy and her vote in the eternal election. Help her see how important that first step is. Use people that Jane interacts with to encourage this and provide ways for her to have spiritual questions answered. Next, support strategy instead of temptation strategy. God's support strategy is both cognitive and behavioral as well. So under cognitive, 
supporting positive and rational thinking. Under personal, pour on the reminders that Jane is a child of the king, that she has value, that she is so much potential. Remind her of the amazing role that she plays as a mom. Calm her mind when she's anxious and when her thoughts become overwhelming. When it comes to family, increase positive interactions between Jane and her parents. Work on the hearts of both Jane and her parents. Help them see that the relationship is so important and that they're missing out on it. Help Jane see the progress that she's made with her son. Support Jane as she works to be there for her son. In terms of friends, encourage Jane to find positive friends. Help Jane think rationally about her situation and find friends that will support her in her life situation. Help Jane think logically about gossip and the random drama that occurs between people she knows. In terms of a worldview, encourage Jane to see the beauty in the world. Encourage her to participate and to contribute to it. Next are the behavioral supports. So support positive behavior and actions. From a personal standpoint, encourage Jane to stop drinking, to numb herself. Encourage Jane to explore her neighborhood, to walk more, and to interact with others. Encourage Jane to try the local coffee shop and see that she could showcase her art there in a few months' time. In terms of family, encourage Jane to connect with her parents in meaningful ways. Encourage Jane to find new tricks on parenting in order to maintain her solid relationship with her son. When it comes to friends, encourage Jane to accept calls from positive coworkers and to agree to meet them once in a while. Encourage Jane to reach out to past friends who had a positive influence on her life. When it comes to work, encourage Jane to continue working hard. Encourage her to submit ideas that she has that would make her job and the company function more smoothly instead of just assuming that they wouldn't go anywhere. In terms of worldview, encourage Jane to stay off of social media or to follow accounts with more positive content. Encourage Jane to do internet searches that result in links to community resources and other positive outlets in her community. Help Jane find uplifting movies and television shows that support a positive outlook on life and the human condition. Help Jane process world events and political division in rational ways, rather than getting overwhelmed by them. Next steps. Remain close to Jane and support her in all of these ways and more. ELP is perfect for Jane and will only grow to be more effective in the future. Okay, there you have it. So same question as before. How did you feel as I was reading that? Better than the first one? For me, 100%. God's plan is all about love, support, encouragement, wanting us to experience the best life possible. What's not to love about that? Compared to Satan, who's always looking for ways to distract us, harm us, and eventually extinguish us from the universe. Now, I know this isn't the easiest stuff to talk about right? Life is much easier when we can go on a walk outside and pretend that the earth has always been there and always will be there. Pretend that there are no threats out there, that everyone has your best interest at heart, that our behavior is our own, and that we can do whatever feels good at the time with no ripple effect, no harm, no foul. Just live for today, be in the moment. I get it. That's attractive to me as well. So let's finish up this section on God's game plan by explaining the benefits of his plan. Now, we already know the benefits of Satan's plan, right? We live for the scratch. We go hard and do all the things. We do everything that the world tells us will bring us happiness. And in the end, we burn ourselves out on the temporal, on the temporary stuff. We refuse the gift that God offers us and we die alone with no hope, no future. Who wins? Satan wins, of course, because he's able to keep us from the life we were meant to live. He gets another small piece of revenge against the God of the universe. But God's game plan is so much better, right? An eternal life plan, or your ELP, offers two very important things. First, it offers a better life here and now. Satan lies to us and tells us that this isn't true. He tries to get us to see all the things that we have to say no to. He gets us to focus on the things that we would miss out on. After all, everyone's doing it. Why wouldn't you do it? But what he's lying about, what he doesn't want us to understand, is that life after accepting the antidote to the sin virus is amazing. 
Just look at the ELPs that God has for each and every one of us. All the support, all the encouragement. That's the life that we can have right here and right now if we accept it and tap into it. The world doesn't change. The human condition doesn't change. We still struggle. We still go through difficult situations. But our response has changed. We learn to rise above the human condition and see it for what it is. That we're part of something so much bigger. We move from living for the scratch to enjoying the scratch while we're here. We realize that true purpose and meaning exist in using the scratch for eternal purposes. And then the second piece, so the first was a better life here now. The second is eternal life when it's all over. So this is life after the scratch. And I think this is the piece that so many people just can't wrap their brains around. I mean, it is abstract, right? I mean, heaven, eternal life. I can't see it. I can't touch it. I can't define it. I can't even visualize it. But life right here and now, I can see that. I can sink my teeth into that. But in doing that, we miss the big picture, right? What if we could live a good life and enjoy the scratch, but then live forever after that? Doesn't that seem like a better solution? Doesn't that seem like the best possible outcome? Let's land the plane. So friends, this is why the gospel message is also called the good news. Why choosing God in the eternal election is good news. Because we go from living a short, troubled life to a life of purpose and meaning that will never end. And that's it. I mean, I don't think it can be summarized any better than that. This week, ask yourself the following questions. First, where are you at with this whole concept of the controversy? Spiritual warfare, God and Satan fighting over you. Does that scare you? Does it help you to see how much you're worth? How how valuable you are in the grand scheme of things? Number two, have you ever sat down and thought about Satan's master plan? His insatiable desire for revenge, how he wants nothing more than to use you against God, and how personalized his weapons are? How he has literally studied you since the day you were born in order to use your weaknesses against you? And finally, number three, do you resonate with God's master plan? Can you see how valuable you are based on the God of the universe supporting and encouraging you? Do you see how God's plan would set you up for a better life, both here and forever? And are you able to give up instant gratification for delayed gratification, knowing that when all of this ends, we will get to live forever? Thank you so much for sticking out again this week. These episodes are really getting long, but it makes total sense since we're in the the heart of conscience-driven therapy and we're really working on the tough pieces of it. Uh, We're talking strategy, action steps, and ways to kind of leverage that freedom of choice in our battle between God and Satan. Next week, we dive into chapter eight called Knowing is Half the Battle. With that, I'll leave you there. Uh, Have a great week, everyone, and as always, keep transcending human. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. You'll also find links to our social media channels, And as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.